My name is Jeff. For uh, those of you who don't know me or uh, weren't here maybe a couple of weeks ago, and I'll, uh, I'll get to speak to you one more time next week. Um, I typically have been known uh, throughout my uh, middle daughter's life as uh, Karis's dad, uh, but uh, now I am uh, joyfully known as Eli and Cassie's grandfather. I've got pictures, but ask at your own peril, because I can hem you up for quite a while. You miss lunch. And so uh, she's beautiful, and, um, and I am um, completely ecstatic uh, about, uh, about that. It's really um, a privilege to be able to speak to churches uh, where uh, we're, we all kind of begin on the same page. And because I knew Jeremy so well, uh, and uh, of course I know Jason quite well, and I, I know that when I say words like God, I'm, I'm, I'm landing in, in sort of the, the constellation. I'm, I'm knocking the ball up on the green near the hole with you. Uh, whereas I have, I, I, I'm a university professor, and when I say the word God, oftentimes with, you know, particularly my gen ed classes, which can be up to 100, 120 you know, students uh, at a time, I know that the vast majority of them are hearing that English word, but they are thinking something really different than I'm thinking. It's really common. But this is not new. I think Americans, in particular, we, we think that this is like a new thing. Uh, but there's nothing new about it, actually. Uh, from the very beginning, when Scripture is being unpacked to Israel, particularly in the Torah, you have this as um, a major uh, impediment to their faith, is they are surrounded by religions. They're surrounded by gods. And so when the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, 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 that, that phrase drops, there's a particularity to it, but they still probably hear just one of many gods. And of course, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that that trips them up from the beginning all the way to the exile. They, they, they never really get past that. They always end up either worshiping Yahweh in a way that is not at all um, uh, you know, consistent with who he is, um, kind of embracing what Danny Carroll in his new book, The Lord Roars, calls false Yahwehs. So using, it's the same way that I would characterize uh, word of faith preachers, uh, televangelists and stuff like that. They use the word Jesus, but they're not really talking about the same Jesus I'm reading about in the scriptures. And so we're using the same English word, but it's not really the same guy uh, that, that we're talking about. One is, one wants me to buy really expensive Nikes, and the other one wants me to take the gospel to the end of the world. These are two really different Jesuses. And, and so this is, uh, that, that kind of idea has got a really old, uh, you know, sort of a background to it, all the way back into the Old Testament. And so Deuteronomy 4, if you look at Deuteronomy 4, it's just massive. And so, uh, and so what I'll do is I will dip into it and with both hands and, and pull out some uh, salient points to kind of shape the text. And we will follow this one big idea. So if you, jot, if you take notes, here's the big idea today. Our big idea is, and we'll unpack this big idea as, our, as kind of our outline. God shapes his covenant people. By experience and testimony, God shapes his covenant people by experience and testimony into a corporate witness to the nations. God shapes his covenant people by experience and testimony 
into a corporate witness to the nations. God shapes his covenant people by experience and testimony into a corporate witness to the nations. And we'll begin with the simplest of, um, of, of elements here. If this is our big idea, then we'll unpack this. The first point then is God. What I was just mentioning a while ago, God, yeah, it, it, it seems like this would be a duh factor you know, kind of idea, but it's really not. In Israel, this becomes so prominent. If you look in Joshua chapter 24, uh, with the, the much crocheted, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Um, uh, Israel immediately responds, oh, us too. And then Joshua says something that was probably fairly shocking to most of them. He says, no, you won't. And they went, whoa, 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 of course we will. And uh, he says, no, you won't. And then he says this, look at verse uh, 15 of uh, Joshua 24, if you're there with me. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose to stay whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you dwell. Now, the phrase beyond the river is interesting there because what it means is the Euphrates. Like, nobody really addressed the Nile as the river. Everybody, uh, uh, but everybody addressed the Euphrates as the river. And so this is saying that from the, the, the very get-go of Israel as a nation, that they clung to other gods, more than likely just, uh, just in the same way that you and I struggle with our own cultural deities and our own cultural uh, you know, sort of loyalties, they did as well. And Joshua says, if you don't kill that, you will fall to it, inevitably fall to it. And they're like, no, no, but they do, right? You know they do. And so this, this idea of God becomes a quintessential idea for Israel. You must understand who God is. And look at this text. This text is amazing. Such lofty God talk. Look at verse 6. He's talking to Israel about keeping his laws. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who were, when they hear all these statutes, they'll surely say, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Or you can drop down to verse 10. On that day, you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. The Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me in all their days. Or you can jump over to the warning against idolatry uh, in, um, in verse 21. Furthermore, the Lord, or not verse 21, I'm sorry, uh, with, um, uh, let's, let's go over to verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go in and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and that there is no other beside him. That's an amazing statement in a context where there are literally thousands of gods. God says to Israel, I'm not just your God, because that would, have been, that would have been an acceptable cultural idea. I am the only God. I am the only God. I know what you think about that. If he's the only God, what are all the other gods? 
Uh, I said this last week, but, or two weeks ago, but, but it bears repeating. In the, I, I, I teach this at the university. In, in religion, religion typically is just simply an extension of ethnic, national, or political power. I think that's what religion is most of the time. It's just merely an extension of ethnicity, of nationality, of politics. That's why things like answers to worship are so tied to religion. Things like that. Those ideas are there. What, and, then, and then this is also true in other religions. Other religions' gods have to, have to rely on conventional measures to get anything done. If they're going to win a war, they've got to have a big army. If they're going to feed a bunch of people, they've got to have a really productive area to be God in. But not this God. This God, without a single standing soldier, pulls apart Egypt, the superpower, the United States uh, of, of the first millennium, pulls them apart like bread. In chapter 14, he says, of Exodus, he says why? So that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. The idea that the Egyptians, the superpower of the Middle East, would, ha- would have to bow the knee to the God of a bunch of slaves was completely countercultural. But it was real. The one thing that the slaves had that the Egyptians did not have was a real God, a genuinely real God. He's the only God there is. And so he says this over and over again. The implications are amazing, right? The vast majority of us walked away from, uh, you know, cultural gods that we embraced, maybe that we were taught and things like that, and, and to the, when the gospel called us. And we were called by this unique voice that was more powerful than all the other things that we had embraced. It was one of the things, for me anyway, that made it so appealing. I'd, I'd grown up in a church. I was a church kid, uh, you know, youth group all-star, you know, the, the whole nine yards. And... Um, but became an atheist almost instantaneously when I went to college. I had no affections bound up in Christianity. Jesus was a really great way to meet girls at church. Jesus was a really great way to you know, get attaboys you know, by people that I respected. But I had no real interest in it. My affections, my, my, my emotions, none of that were tied to Jesus. So why, 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 why keep him around? And so as I, when I went to college, I just felt no reason at all to continue to embrace what I thought was just kind of an antiquated version of morality, just decorated up in this guy. And I grew up in the state of Alabama in the 1960s and 70s. You can do the math as to what the, the Baptist church looked like you know, that I went to. And it was, it was filled with really good people, but it was also filled with all sorts of reasons for me to walk away. And so I did not knowing that I was walking away from something that really wasn't the thing anyway, right? It's like if I ate a piece, uh, a big piece of dirt, and someone said, hey, you know, that's cheesecake. And I went, I hate cheesecake. And I put it down to you. If you really knew what cheesecake was, you'd go, that's not, that's not cheesecake. If you had cheesecake, you would, not, you would not act like that. That's not cheesecake. But that was, that was what I walked away from. I walked away from the, the dirt, and I thought that was the gospel. I thought that was Christianity. So I just simply walked away from it. To embrace what I thought, you know, going to the university, I thought would make me this, this, you know, this sophisticated guy. And then I found out over the year or two that atheism had nothing to offer either. It didn't offer me any more. 
It just changed the jerseys. The same bigots, but they were just in different jerseys. Same, you know, same, same, same you know, group of people. They're just in different. They just had a different look. They all had PhDs, uh, and that, rather than rather than shotgun racks in the back of their truck, but it was the same thing. It was the same thing. And so, when I became a Christian, it was a remarkable discovery for me. It was amazing. When people began to put in my hands the writings of the Puritans in particular, and I began to read this massive vision of God they had, it was like water for a thirsty man. I think this is what people still want. I think this is what Christians really want. Especially as we move into what's clearly a post-Christian culture in the United States, Christians will put pastors to the, to, to the, um, the, the thumbnails to pastors and say, this has got to be better than a show or I'm gone. Because you're asking me to risk everything, like our brother in India. Our brother in India would say, this is worth everything to risk. Risk it all. Risk it all. This is the, the bigness of God, the uniqueness of God, the particularity of God, the livingness of God. Makes him all worth it. He is completely and utterly sovereign, completely and utterly incomparable. And this God is a God that does the rest of our big idea. Our second point, God shapes his covenant people. It's very important to understand that when you get saved, that you automatically begin to be shaped. I think this is really characteristic of any real relationship in your life. I can't even imagine being like I, uh, you know, being a being a grandfather now. I can't imagine having grandchildren and it just not affecting me at all. I, I, I act like I don't even know they're there. I mean, I've met men like that. But I've not walked away from them thinking, oh, they really understand the nature of this relationship. I walked away from them thinking, this is such a narcissist that he has no idea that he's looking at this beautiful opportunity with his child to be able to look at him and and find a history in him and things like that. When my dad died, that was one of the most painful aspects about the death of my father was I knew that my youngest daughter, Sarah, would never know him. And so I just started collecting stories and things like that. My brother and I just started collecting stories because we, were, we wanted them to know this man. This is where their history is. This is where their heritage is. This might explain the behavior of their father to some degree. Uh, it, uh, it all is bound up, you know, in this guy. But yet these, other, these men that I've met that don't seem to be affected by that are remarkable, just narcissistic. And you can just trade that off to, you know, the husbands that I've had to talk to in, in marital situations that don't seem to get being a husband. The wives I've had to talk to that don't seem to be able to get being a wife. They, they, they miss the idea of the relationship. The relationship is just really transactional. In salvation, though, there is no such thing as a merely transactional relationship. It is a relationship that takes hold of you and automatically begins to shape you. And this is exactly what we have here. This is exactly this. Look at, uh, look at um, the idea of this. He, he immediately begins to tell them that they are going to be taught by him because he's their God. Um, verse 5, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them, do them, for that will be your wisdom. And we read that a second ago. We'll read it in, in, in a few minutes as well. Drop down uh, to verse 11. Uh, um, and you came near 
and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven wrapped in darkness and gloom and the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire you heard the sounds of the words but saw no form there was only a voice and he declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform and uh, that is the ten commandments and he wrote them on two tablets of stone and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you that you them in the land. Verse uh, 15, watch yourselves therefore carefully. You saw no form on that day. The Lord spoke to you at Horb in the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making the likeness of male or female, on and on. There's, there's, no, there's no idea of, okay, now I've, I've saved you and from Egypt and, you know, hey, uh, you know, you're on your own now. This is, I will now shape you, I will now inform you, I will now shape you with my word, you'll obey my word. This is, what, this is, what, this is how this happens. Now, this, this is bound up in the nature of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is written like an ancient Near Eastern treaty. Most ancient Near Eastern treaties started out something like this. Hi, I'm King Diggory, and I, uh, I just got through killing your king and all your army. Um, and I'll kill all of you too if you don't obey me, so here's some new rules. That's, that's the way most treaties went down. Deuteronomy opens up like this. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I chose your fathers. I love them. I have delivered you into the land just like I promised them. I loved you, and I intend on you to set your love on me and love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's rules. Do you see that difference in that? That's a massive difference. I have saved you. I've, I've, I've saved you not based on your own merit. There is no merit there, but based on the fact that I will keep and maintain my promise regardless of your merit. And now here's the way you're going to be shaped. That's a very different idea. A really different idea. God shapes his covenant people. The rest of the Bible talks about this, right? Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, be devoted to the one and despise the other. John 13, a new commandment that I give to you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. Colossians 3, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 1 John 4, dear friends, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You are shaped automatically by grace. The grace that saves you, if you're not being shaped by grace, you are not and have not been saved by grace. Because grace is a thing that does something to human beings. It does something to sinners. It doesn't simply just transfer you from the damned column to the saved column. It transfers you and it fills you. It saves you. Remember, you have a relationship with a living person here. And all real relationships change you, always change you. God shapes us. How does he shape us? God shapes his covenant people by experience, by experience. Look at this, uh, verse 32. Ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on earth, and ask from one end of the heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Well, what's he talking about? Verse 33. 
Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of a fire as you have heard and still live? Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation by himself in the midst of another nation by trials and signs and wonders and war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. On earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Here Moses preaches that God's power on Israel is supposed to shape them in particular ways. They experienced this. They experienced this. They, in fact, he testifies again to their experience of Horeb. We just mentioned it a while ago. We'll read it again. Verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves. You saw no form on that day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. But where you act corruptly and make a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water under the earth. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars. By the way, sun and the moon and stars were, were gods in every pantheon in the ancient Near East except Israel. They're just creations. And so, but it lets you look to you and see all these things, right? And um, uh, verse, uh, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, that the things that the Lord your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven. By the way, they do that. As you can see in Zephaniah chapter 1, the priests who go down and bow down to the temple, and then they go up on top of their houses and bow down to the hosts of heaven. So Israel gets there. They eventually get there and they... They pray to the sun, moon, and stars. Verse 20. But the Lord your God has taken you out and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people for his own inheritance, as you are this day. Yeah, and it goes into uh, uh, Moses blaming uh, Israel for, for him uh, messing up in New Numbers 20. I've always thought that was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, but he... he uh, this, is, this is serious, the experience of God. Do you remember... When you became a Christian, like I, 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 I've, uh, I tell this story um, uh, back in uh, when I lecture on uh, when I'm in Leviticus, and I'm talking about the deep connection between uh, ritual and ethics uh, in in Israel. But I, but it's about this story about these these two young ladies that I that I that I met when I first got to the school. And I assumed that they probably thought that I was just some old guy coming back to school because they talked really freely in front of me. And I just acted like I did. So I typically put headphones in, uh, but then I don't have them plugged into anything. So I just put the other thing in my pocket. It's just so people won't talk to me. And and, um, so it's part of being the introvert, geeky uh, type. And and so... um, but, I, but my first chapel at CBU, I walk in, and now I, now I really don't look like an old guy going back to school. I, mean, I, I look like, yeah, I've got a tweed jacket on, a Hebrew Bible under my arm. I'm like the professional geek. And uh, I walk in, but I'm the happiest guy in the world. And my eyes fall across the gym all the way 
to two people, hands uplifted, eyes closed, singing to Jesus. These are two girls. And, um, and my wife was actually very happy that the very first thought I had was actually positive. I'm, I'm naturally a very cynical person. I don't believe things. I don't naturally give people a bit of the doubt. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a great guy uh, on, on a natural level. I was saved from those things, working those things out, you know. But, uh, but, but my first question, my, my first thought was, oh, they became Christians. They must have become Christians like over the weekend or something. Because they, they, weren't, they weren't on Friday. Uh, I mean, they still weren't on Friday. It's a, and, um, because in my mind, I remembered when I became a Christian. I mean, I, I, I can almost still get emotional. Even though I can barely remember the, the, you know, the time. And I was in New York. And I was reading the Bible for the first time for myself. I was just saying it was me in a little room that I was staying in, in, in this, for the summer there in New York with this cat named Shadow who uh, liked me. I Believe it or not, but at that time I was a bit of a hippie. I had long hair and bushy beard. That's hard to, hard to even embrace now, isn't it? I, you look at me, I'm just an opie with a beard. Uh, and, um, and so, but, uh, but, those, but the, you know, the cat would climb under my hair and, and sleep on my neck and, and, uh, and hang out with me in the mornings. And, and I started reading Matthew, and I, never, I could not get past Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I knew I was done. I knew I was just done. And even if I could, even if I could act perfect from that time forward, everything in my past screamed for my condemnation. And I knew it. But, you know, I mean, praise God, right? I also knew at the moment that I was being shown that for mercy, not to just condemn me. A legalist would show that to you to condemn you, right? It would show it to you and say, let me show you what you've done. That's, the, that's what the enemy does. God shows you the sin that's so desperately tied to your heart to rescue you. To say, you can either, you can either die with this or you can run to me. And in a moment of God's mercy to me, I ran to him. And I remember knowing something something cataclysmic had happened on the inside of me. I didn't have a light in the night experience or any of that. You know, was a, I, I didn't, you know, launch into song or anything. It was quite quiet. But on the inside of me, it felt like an earthquake had happened. It was something that, that, that was disheveled. Now, all of a sudden, I saw everything about me more clearly than I had ever seen it before. And even though I didn't know anything about Jesus, I knew enough to know that he was saving me from this. He was saving me from me. That experience matters. I think that particularly for you know, groups like us uh, who you know, push away from sort of you know, the idea of you know, uh, uh, you know, the charismatic church that we've, that we've seen kind of operate in the United States. And in other places that we, we, we tend to sometimes throw the baby out of the bathwater and just forget that in any real relationship, there is experience. And that experience is definitive in some very real way. You want to cling to it. You don't want to push it away. You want to cling to it and continue to define it and redefine it and redefine it and redefine it. Those experiences have to be always under the microscope of what God's testimony says. But experience is powerful. The, every single Christian, if you're a Christian at all, has had this experience. 
that Charles Wesley writes about, and and can it be, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. That is the experience of every one of us. Even though it happened in a thousand different ways, it's still the experience of us all. God shapes his community by experience. To have an interaction with the living God is to have an interaction of the most serious caliber. You cannot be the same after that. You have no idea who you just met. But God doesn't only shape us by experience. God shapes his people also by testimony. God shapes his people by testimony. Our next point. And this is really the thrust of this whole text, beginning with verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I'm teaching you, and do them that you may live, go in, and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, your fathers, is giving you. They are not in the land yet. They're headed in to take possession of the land. This is going to be a fight. Nobody in the right mind thinks that they're going to just walk in and say to all the Canaanites, Hey, I don't know if you guys got this memo, but our God said we could have this land now. The Canaanites go, oh, well, sure. They all know this is going to be a fight. There'll be blood spilled. There'll be people they care about die in this. They know this is going to be. And what's going to shape them? It's the statutes. It's the testimonies of God. In fact, the statutes and testimonies of God were those things that would shape their experience. That's the logic of him looking at them saying, hey, listen, you remember Horeb. You heard lots of words. You didn't see any form. So you had better pay attention to this this set of testimonies, this set of laws. Do not make idols. Anytime you make an idol, you reduce me down to whatever it is you just made the idol out of. Most of the time, in fact, this is a great quote by J.I. Packer, to recraft anything into uh, anything other than the incarnate Christ. Sorry, to recraft God into anything other than the incarnate Christ that has come to us is to reduce God down to your most important affections. Isn't that good? That's what we do. We reduce him down to our most important affections. God has given us his testimony, given us his word to ensure that we think about him only in the ways he's revealed himself. That we don't craft him into our own image or craft him in the image of our, of our fondest affections. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven and on earth there is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and commandments. That's in verse 39. Testimony of God. I think you're in just an amazing place uh, you know, here with Jason and you had such a great, uh, you know, heritage with Jeremy being your pastor, uh, that you've got pastors uh, who have stood up here routinely uh, and other brothers in the congregations uh, that, that stand up here routinely and speak the word of God to you. Uh, it's, that's, I, 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 um, because I have these conversations often with other pastors who don't think of these things the same way as, as, as I, a church like you would, a church like Redeemer Baptist and Riverside would, um, I, I've, I've had these conversations where they've said things like the, preaching expositionally or preaching through the scriptures or exposing the meaning of the scriptures. It's sort of an antiquated idea and people don't really like it. And, and you know, you, it's better to speak to their felt needs, their psychological needs and things like that. And I'm always like, ah, that's, I don't think that that has any merit. I think that at the very core of every local church 
is this question is, is how are you handling the scriptures among the believers? How do you equip the saints? I mean, that's what Paul tells the elders. Equip the saints for the work of the ministries. Well, I can speak to your felt needs if you want me to, but, you know, the fact of the matter is I'm not a real good counselor anyway. And so if you said, yeah, I've got some really problematic felt needs, deep psychological needs, Jeff, I would just look at you and go, Google it. I don't know how to do this. I really don't. I'm not the guy you want to talk to. And but I don't. I don't. I mean, I can speak to you. Know, I can talk to you about your marriage. I can talk to you about parenting if you want to do that. You know, things like that. Just because I've been in the game for so long. I've been. You know, Angela. I've been married for like for as old as, as as about half your congregation is has been alive. And so so that's easy. We, we can we can tell you all the mistakes we've made and tell you to get away from those. Uh, and we've had four kids, and they're all as as impressive as Karis. And and so. We did a lot wrong, but, you know, we did obviously some stuff right. And, and, um, and so we could talk to you about that. Outside of that, I'm pretty much, my gun's pretty empty. Uh, I don't, that's a southern thing. Probably not a great analogy in California. Uh, but uh, but, but uh, you know what I'm saying. I don't, have a whole lot, I don't have a whole lot to offer. But I can do this. I can open up the scriptures, right? I can unpack what I see there. I can show you these big ideas that you can grab hold of. These ideas then shape who you are. They shape the way that you think about the world. They shape the way that you think about the nations. And frankly, they shape the way that the nations think about you. Remember our, 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 uh, our ideas that God, God shapes his covenant people by experience and testimony into a corporate witness to the nations. This is one of my favorite texts right here. This is uh, just uh, just amazing. Uh, early in verse uh, in verse four, I've read it uh, a couple of times, but this is amazing. Verse six: Keep them testimony of God, and do them, for they will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. So that's the the phrase there that would we would use as nations or ethnic groups or things like that. This was what Israel was supposed to be. They were supposed to be this fishbowl community. That people could look in and they would see an alternative community. A group of people treating each other like no other group of people they've ever met treated each other. In fact, you see this all through Deuteronomy. Like one of the most shocking places that you see it is in Deuteronomy 17 in the law to the king. The king must write down a copy of this, the Torah, that he's reading. Probably more likely a copy of Deuteronomy. A copy of it, and he must write his own copy and reflect and meditate on it all the time. This is why. So that he may not lift his heart above his brothers. Um, I, my, my, my whole thing, uh, my, you know, my emphasis of my, my scholarship, you know, oftentimes ancient Near Eastern history. I can promise you there's no... There is no idea of a monarchy in ancient Near Eastern history where the impulse that lies at the center of it is that the king does not hold himself higher than his brothers. That is the point of being king. The point of being king is so that you can look on all the peons and say, I am God. I am the God that, that runs the pantheon of, say, Egypt, for example. Have you, ever, have you ever wondered why there's no name attached to Pharaoh in the Exodus? People, this kind of thing just hides out in plain sight and nobody ever asks. Because you get, you get Pharaoh's name later, like Shishak and guys like that, but, but not in Exodus. It's because during this period of time, nobody said the name of Pharaoh. 
That's why we don't, that's why, you know, there's a toss-up as to which one it is. Uh, the guy in the 15th century, the guy in the 13th century. Uh, but, but, the, but he never said the name of Pharaoh. He thought himself to be a god. Well, you can imagine how that worked out, you know, during the Exodus. In chapter 7 through 14, he just looks like a complete loser. Uh, and uh, has no capacity to do anything right. Can't defend himself against the god of the slaves. Uh, they, I mean, it's, it's, a remarkable, it's a remarkable kind of uh, unpacking of God's absolute sovereignty. And Pharaoh's very much humanness. But that's not how Egyptians thought about Pharaoh. They thought about him as God. But the kings of all of Mesopotamia were perceived to be the sons of God or the gods themselves sort of infused into humanity. But in Israel, no way. The fishbowl community had a king, and at the center of this king's whole impulse of ruling was to ensure that he did not place himself above his brothers. It's an amazing idea. And we can just go on and on and on really through Deuteronomy and demonstrate, just comparatively speaking, how unusual this group was. What do the nations see when they look in at Hacienda Heights Baptist Church? What do they see? I can tell you as a guy who's on the outside sort of looking in, that I see a great deal to be commended for. Really impressed, actually. But there's always room for improvement, right? Do they see ambition? Will your children, as they're growing up, feel the ambition that the gospel inspires? Will they see you sending people out of here into the nations? Will they see you reaching out into your community with intentionality? Not to be some culture warrior, but to be one who serves, longing for people to notice and know that the God you serve is the only God. There is no other. All of those things are so vital. So very vital. God saves and shapes his covenant people by experience and testimony into a corporate gospel testimony to the nations. That's what we're supposed to be. And so as you move forward, submit to your elders. Cling to the word of God. Celebrate your experience with song. That's what your know, great songs always remind you of things that maybe not happen to you in the same way, but they happen to you all the same. You celebrate the redemption that's yours in Christ. And look forward to a life. Shape your life with gospel ambitions together as a group so that you become this fishbowl community in the city of industry that cannot help but notice that you live out of step with everything else, joyfully out of step, marching behind the king. Father, in the name of Christ, I pray that you would make much of yourself And give my brothers and sisters here great joy, Father, in your gospel that saves them and shapes them for your glory, their joy, and for the peace of those who will hear the gospel from them. In the name of Christ, amen.